So when I heard the title of our sermon series, which takes us throughout the whole Old Testament this fall, I laughed out loud because I say it all the time. There's no way. Is my husband going to remember that there's leftovers in the fridge from last night? There's no way. He's going to eat ramen instead. We had a late night last night. Is my baby going to sleep past 6 a.m.? Oh, there's no way. But I know it also goes deeper than that for a lot of us too, right? I know some of the questions that you ask too. Is this friendship, relationship, marriage ever going to be what I want it to be? There's no way. Is there any possibility of, and I'm not even talking about people at large, I'm talking about Christians, Christians reconciling with one another despite differences? There's no way. Could God actually be active and working in the world, not just in the big ways, but in the small ways too, and all of it together? There's, oh, there's no way. Well, what if there was a way? Today our story is going to begin with the words, sometime after this, which I hope might do two things for you. First, remind you that we are reading just one chapter today out of a much bigger story a bigger book, and it's hard to make sense of any one chapter on its own when we, when we read this book. So that's first. And then second, I hope that you might be asking the question, sometime after what? So first, to address those two questions, the bigger story. If you tuned in last week, you heard the story of Genesis 12, which was all about Abraham and his wife Sarai, in Egypt. And today we find ourselves still in Egypt, but it's more like back in Egypt as the winding story goes. God's promises began to take flesh in Abraham by giving him a son, Isaac. Isaac then with twin sons, Jacob and Esau. But Jacob is the one who ends up getting the family blessing. And in a moment of grace, coming out of a lot of longing and waiting with his own beloved, he bears Joseph. Now, all of that is a longer story, but that's kind of some of the context. And from the very beginning, then, this is to address the, the second question of sometime after what. From the very beginning, Joseph's story specifically is just full of ups and downs and twists and turns. He's sold by his brothers into slavery as a teenager. He goes away from home, is sent away from home into the house of Potiphar, a official of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And there, Joseph rises in rank and responsibility. He's noticed. He's rewarded. But then he ends up thwarting the advances of Potiphar's wife. Um, he's framed in that moment, and down, down, down he goes once more. To prison this time. And even there, though, Joseph 
finds ways to make himself useful, to be seen. He rises in favor, and again, in rank and responsibility, and that's where we find him, where our story begins today. He's in prison in Egypt. Um, He's also in charge of the other prisoners as well. So all of that to say, heading into our story today, this is Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the guard, the prison, where Joseph was also confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued for some time in custody. One night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in prison, each one with his own dream and each one with its own meaning. When Joseph came in in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, and so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams and and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God, please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine had three branches. As soon as it budded, blossoms came out and the clusters burst into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into the cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But remember me. When things go well with you, please do me the kindness and make mention of me to Pharaoh so I can get out of this place. For I was, in fact, stolen from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should put me in this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a pole, and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearing, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but the chief baker he hanged, just as Joseph had interpreted it. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to consider just a couple of things with you this morning with the shortest of shortest taglines on the end afterward. Um, There is an unavoidable certainty that we find in this story, as well as a subversive promise. And we're going to get to the promise in a minute, but in order to do that, we need to face a difficult reality first, an unavoidable certainty. I was talking to a really wise one of you last week, Sunday after church, and you said something really profound. Maybe it shouldn't have felt as profound as it did to me, but it was. The wise one said, Jenna, sometimes God asks us to do really hard things. No. (laughs) I immediately thought, no, that's not how it works. That's not how God works. God wants me to flourish and thrive and be happy. He, He wants us all to be in shalom because that's how it was in the beginning and that's how it will be again in the end. And on some level that might be right, but we aren't in the beginning anymore and we're also not to the end yet. And sometimes God asks us to do really hard things. You see, some time ago, God or this friend felt God asking her to make a big sacrifice in her life for an amount of time that she thought would be a couple of years. She knew there would be difficult moments, and there were, but God's goodness came through in so many gracious ways. But it wasn't just a couple of years. It was more than that. It was twice what she thought it would be, and she sacrificed a lot to stay in that hard place but it's where God asked her to be. The unavoidable certainty, and I, and I say I use the word unavoidable because I really want to avoid it. I want to avoid being honest about it. I, I want to avoid having to say it to your faces here even now. But sometimes God asks us to do really hard things. Now this story, Joseph in prison, Genesis 40, is all but a moment in the life of Joseph. Just a brief moment. In the book of Genesis, um, what we're told of his life, the span of his life, um, happens over 13 chapters, and this is just 23 verses of that. But that's okay, because we know Joseph, right? You don't have to be a Christian for very long or even at all to know Joseph. The amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, one of my favorite musicals, Jacob, Jacob and Sons, always comes into my head when I think about Joseph. Poor Joseph. He has his dreams. He's betrayed by his brother. He, brothers. He ends up in Egypt in slavery. But again, it's all okay because we know the end of the story. He becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. He extends forgiveness and grace to his brothers far and above what could have been expected and far and above what he had been given by them. And things are restored and made right, and God is in control and all is well. 
Yes, all of that's true, but just because we know the end of the story and just because we know the end of our story as Christians when all things will be made new and made right again, we can't skip over the unavoidable certainty that we know to be true now. Sometimes God asks us to do really hard things, to be in really hard seasons without an end date. And just to be clear, it's not just Joseph with this experience. Before Joseph came Jacob, who literally wrestled with God because that's how hard things were. Before Jacob was Isaac, the evidence of God making a way, almost though his life snuffed out on a mountain because that's how hard things were. Before Isaac was Abraham, who God asked to do hard things over and over. So is it just a family legacy? Or is it also true for the life of the person of God today? Jesus said at first, in this world, you will have trouble. A man named St. John of the Cross puts it this way. He calls it the dark night of the soul. It's, it's a thing. And as exciting as dreams and interpretation of dreams may be, I think this story is actually one about waiting in the hard place. Waiting when God seems to do nothing. And I think you also know what that's like. God didn't stop Joseph's brothers from selling him into slavery, and he does nothing to stop the one you love from making the decision you know is going to be destructive. God didn't stop Potiphar's wife from trying to assault Joseph, and he does nothing to stop the mental health realities and issues that are growing. God didn't stop the baker from forgetting Joseph, and God seemingly does nothing to bring peace to a war in Ukraine. And even if God is still there working behind the scenes, well, I heard someone say once that God's presence with those in suffering and the way God works almost never seems fast enough for those who are suffering. And isn't that true? Recently, I found myself echoing the voices of the psalmist who cried out over and over, how long, O Lord, only to hear the steady and still voice of the Spirit remind me of what I didn't want to hear, to trust God's timing. But I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to stay here. What's your hard thing? Where are you being asked to be and maybe stay right now are you caring for the belligerent, aging parent? Are you fighting to save the marriage that seems to be taking its last breaths? Are you wondering how you'll ever grasp the reality of the diagnosis or the death? Are you trying to figure out who you are in a world that's trying to tell you who you are for you? I don't know what it is for you, but I know what it might be. And and it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Christians aren't 
promise health and wealth. In fact, that's a gospel that I wholeheartedly reject. Sometimes God asks us to do really hard things. Sometimes it feels like the story ends with, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's the unavoidable certainty. And that would be a really hard sermon to hear and end on if it weren't for the fact that there's also a subversive promise. Because this isn't the end of the story. And, and those words don't have the final say. It's like when Jesus continues, he said, like I said earlier, he said in the world you will have trouble, but he also said, take heart for I have overcome the world. And here's the truth. If you trust God, God will have his way in your life. That's the promise that we see in Joseph's life, but it's not limited just to that. You know the famous Romans passage, we all love it so much. It says, we, all, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And it's true. You have a God who came for you, who died for you, who rose for you, who prays for you. But this promise, we know too, is also subversive in the way it works itself out in Joseph, Joseph's life, at least. As Joseph recognizes that his immediate future might be shaped by the actions of mere humans, he pleads with the baker. He says, remember me when it's well with you. Please do me the kindness and make mention of me to Pharaoh's and so to get me out of this place. And while it took time and circumstances to change and perhaps the hand of God to, yes, the baker remembered him. Yes, Joseph used his skill set of management and organization to rise in leadership over Egypt. Yes, God's people were then cared for in the midst of a drought. Yes, God had his way in the strangest and most subversive of manners. This past week was the anniversary of Rich Mullen's death 25 years ago. In 1997, uh, at the age of 42, the singer and songwriter was killed in a car accident on his way to a benefit concert. I don't know how much you know about Rich. I'm guessing either a lot or a little, depending on who you are. I was first introduced to him by way of one of his songs that my dad would always play on uh, Sunday mornings. And because I can't share that with you over, uh, over our video now, I'm just going to sing it to you a little bit. Uh, do you know the song? You gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up. It's Christmas morning. We listened to that song on Christmas mornings often growing up. And then there was another one of his songs that came into play in my life in a really specific time, uh, really in my experience of life's first significant tragedy that I was privy to and close to. The song I remember that came on the radio one day as I was driving in grief in high school was, Hold me, Jesus, I'm shaking like a leaf. Maybe you know that one. Or maybe you know one of his classics uh, that, incidentally, he would also later come to regret writing. 
uh, for reasons that we don't have to talk about here, but uh, I think you know it. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. We all know that. And then there's the one that was finished for him after he died. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. And there's so many more. For my husband, Keenan, Rich has been a major influence of faith because of his music, but also, and more so, the way Rich lived his life. Keenan reminded me of Rich's perspective of the subversive promise in Joseph's story, and I'll share that with you in just a minute. But did you know that for all the accolades that Rich received from mainstream Christian culture and Christian music culture, he really wished to remain distinct from it. He, he pushed back a little or a lot on it all. I'm not so sure, actually, that the Christians who loved him in his life would have actually liked him all that much. He was contrarian. He didn't like American Christianity. He, he thought American flags in church was offensive. Can you believe that? On being told once that he had the capability of being quite charming and also extremely offensive, Rich responded, I love that combination. He modeled his life after St. Francis of Assisi and gave away a lot of what he had, asking, why would you give away only 10% of the root of all evil? Give away 90%. And in it all, he was restless, carrying an acute sense that the world wasn't what it should be. And yet in his life and work and legacy of music, at the same time, he routinely stood by time and time again that God would stand by his promises, even in less than desirable ways and circumstances. So this brings me to his reflections on Joseph. This is what Rich said. God did not give Joseph any special information about how to get from being the son of a nomad in Palestine to being Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. What he did give Joseph were 11 jealous brothers, the attention of a very loose and vengeful woman, the ability to do the service of interpreting dreams and managing other people's affairs, and the grace to do that faithfully, wherever he was. God will have his way and make his way in the midst of it all too, I believe will give you the grace to do what he's calling you to do faithfully, wherever you are. Now, just one more quick thing before we close. Again, if you tuned in last week, John reminded us that election, the point of election or this chosenness that we have as Christians, it's not actually about going to heaven or hell. It's about what you've been made for, what you've been made to do. And so take this to heart right now. When God chose Joseph and when God chooses you, he's working to love and save and bless and redeem all of the world and all of creation. I believe that it matters to God that all things work for the good of those who love him for you, for you personally and individually, I think that matters. 
And at the same time, that isn't the end game for God. It's just way too small. The other day I thanked a friend for loving me and for being in my corner. She said, well, this is going to sound incredibly cheesy, but I'm actually in the kingdom's corner. It's not for you. It's through you for the world. Somehow all of it together. So maybe, maybe there is a way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. We'll come to the table now together. If you have bread or juice or some version of that at home where you are, hear these words. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you.